0: Oh, do you have any questions about your practice or about the teachings that you'd like to discuss? (laughs) (laughs) In the chanting, uh, when it's written with uh, is it written with a V or written with a W? <laughs> written with a v-, v and pronounced as a W. And why is that?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, probably because in... Uh, actually, I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You probably need to ask a uh, more of a Pali scholar who's kind of into kind of how things are transliterated
1: yeah.
0: I mean, one of the things—this is really not very uh, essential to your practice—but
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is interesting. Just as as different even names of you know some of the great Thai and teachers of Thailand and Burma are transliterated into English, there can be mm-hmm. very different ways of transliterating. You no, know, so. Could everybody hear the question? It was about my having mentioned earlier in the retreat about how a transformative place in my practice was the realization that even though I knew the practice would inevitably help others, so I knew that from the beginning, that that the more we practice, it can't help but help the people around us. You know, as we get more together Um, but when i saw that that could actually be the motivation for practice you know so it's actually putting for myself it was putting that up front rather than seeing it simply as an end result or a byproduct there's always the danger you know in a spiritual practice and of Undertaking it, since we're not fully enlightened, most of us, anybody? <laughs> There's always the danger of even undertaking a spiritual practice in some kind of self-referential way. You know, because that, to a larger or a smaller extent, is still within us. And Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, he had such a good phrase for this, he called it spiritual materialism, where we use spiritual practice in some way or other, and sometimes very subtle ways, to enhance the self, the sense of self. You know, I'm going to get enlightened, I'm going to be this great bodhisattva, I really want to progress in my meditation. You know, but all of that is rooted in the sense of I. And that is going to be there. You know, so don't be dismayed when you see that. It's important just to recognize it. You know, to see that, yeah, there is that, there can be that perspective in the undertaking of practice. The idea of bodhijitta which is this aspiration to get enlightened for the welfare of all, for the benefit of all, is in Theravada teachings, but it's not highlighted as much as it is in, for example, the Tibetan teachings. And so when I you know, began a little study of some of the Tibetan teachings and uh, just became more familiar with that idea, something in me resonated very deeply. And the piece, and I think I may have talked about this earlier, the piece that was so meaningful to me was seeing that compassion really is the expression of selflessness. And so the more we practice, compassion follows from that. The more we understand emptiness, the more we understand selflessness, compassion flows from that. And so then it became very easy and meaningful and widening of my understanding of the path, to say, yes, my may my practice be for the benefit and welfare of all, and really have that as the motivation, or one of the motivations, you know, for doing it. And able to do that without it being rooted in a sense of I. You know, understanding that the compassionate activity that we engage in with other beings is going to flow out of our practice. And it's that realization, it's almost like saying, oh, may this happen. Right? It's not, it's not rooted in a, in a narrow sense of self. Does that address what you were getting at? It feels to me like it it broadens our path, so instead of, instead of, you know, kind of on a, let me say, it broadens our path in the way that it weakens the tendency of spiritual materialism. I think that's the best way of saying it. Knowing that that's a liability, you know that that is always a possibility. You know, in the way we practice, and I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've had many moments of, you know, overstriving and self-judgment. They're what I call the practice assessment tapes. You know, we were constantly assessing our practice. did I, did I share with you my garden story? Well, I, 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 I guess with some I did, and some I didn't. Anyway, I'm not much of a gardener, but I did have try my one and only garden when I was eight years old, and so I planted this garden. You know, I was just a young kid, and I got to prepare the ground. I plant the seeds, and you know, the 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 shoots of the carrots came up. You know. And I just got so excited. Every time I saw a shoot, I would pull it, pull it out of the ground to see how the carrot was doing. <laughs> it's not a good gardening technique. <laughs> Years later in my practice, I found myself doing the same thing. You know, I, w- I would so often kind of be, you know, holding, how am I doing? You know, how is it doing? Instead of just doing it, you know, and letting, letting the carrot come to ripeness, you know, in its own time. I forgot where this was going. (laughs) This tendency to be doing the practice in a self-referential way, since we do so much else of our lives in a self-referential way, You know, it's a strong conditioning, and I found this aspect of bodhijitta helped to alleviate that, you know, and so it just became very, for me, a very transforming and beautiful way to proceed. Well, you know, in the in one sutta, after the Buddha, uh, after some time of his teachings, he had, uh, you know, the first, his first sixty Arhant disciples, uh, and his instruction to them was, you know. Go out, spread the Dharma, proclaim the Dharma for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, for the good of devas and humans. You know, proclaim the Dharma, pure in the beginning, pure in the begin, in the middle, pure in the end, and so you can see. Uh, for me, that's just kind of an inspiring. Uh, it's like that was the intent, or or there was that that compassionate move. You know to share the dharma with others and then we take the example of the buddha's own life which is certainly prominent in the theravada teachings you know the buddha was motivated to become buddha by this sense of compassion for the suffering of others mm. so again it's there i think it's there and the flavor is there but it's not doesn't seem to be so explicit and that's what I appreciated about uh, those teachings that did make it explicit you know that we can really cultivate that motivation Mm. and I found that in doing that just in the practice in whatever way we do of bodhicitta and it can be something as simple at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a day you know, may my practice be for the benefit of all, for the awakening of all. You know, so it can be formulated very simply in, in whatever way inspires us. I found that by doing that regularly, and not only on retreat, but in one's life, it um, it inspires the motivation to actually put it into practice so in our life our ordinary life situations having cultivated the sense of bodhicitta you know in the silent space of retreat and if it's kind of planted deeply then in situations where we can be of service it's like already there's that that seed has been planted and we're more inclined or more inspired to do so At least that's been my experience. Okay, the question was how do you bridge the use of kind of the relative level, the relative understanding of I and you and others and separate beings that we do in the meta practice with the more ultimate understanding of uh, selflessness. Uh, I don't know what was explained before, so this may be deeper, it may be shallower. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but I think it's I mean you you alluded to the resolution of it in your uh, understanding that there are these two levels of truths, the relative level and the ultimate level. Another word for relative level, which might help understand the bridge. You could also say conventional level. And so we, use, we can use speech, conventional speech. I, you, self, and all the rest. We don't, we don't have to give up that use of language because it's conventional, it conveys something, it's pointing to our experience on this relative level, right? And so the world we live in, largely, is on this level. Most of us are probably not living on the level of simply seeing this and all of this only as five changing, insubstantial, dukkha-filled aggregates. <laughs> you know, in our normal lives, we're just interrelating conventionally, and 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 it's on that level that meta, or a, that's that's a mm, a major level that meta operates on. It also works on the on the ultimate level, but in a slightly different way. Um, so I think we should have an ease with that, you know and just say, yeah, this is this is how we're operating, and we can have this feeling of self and other and compassion and love, you know for that. For me. The thing that brought it together was understanding that this relative level and the more ultimate level are not apart. They're actually a union. And so I think I've given this example. You know, if you. Sp- <laughs> I wish this were a little smaller. <laughs> you know, so here's a bell. And we look at the bell, we understand what it is, we strike it and it creates a nice sound, you could put stuff in it. So it functions on this relative level as a bell, and it's useful, and we know how to use it. On an ultimate level, if we saw this through a high-power microscope, you know, it would be mostly empty space. But it's not that the empty space is over here and the bell is here. It's actually a union, and it's just keying in on different levels. So I think that's the useful place to see that this experience of this, this mind-body process, we key into it on a relative level, we cultivate the Brahma-Viharas with respect to it, with respect to others on that level, and at the same time, particularly through our practice, we have the experience to some extent of the fact that there's no one there. It's just it's just like a changing energy field, you know, phenomenon. There's no substantiality. And the latter informs the former. You know, the more we understand that then we can operate on the relative level with a great deal more ease. There's the other danger, a danger from the other side though. And we can get very attached, and most people are to the relative level, to the world of things and people and separation and an attachment on that level causes a lot of problems, you know, because we're attached to the solidity of things and the separation of things. And so our wisdom can break that up a bit. But we can also get attached to emptiness. You know, and kind of up-leveling everything. Oh, nothing matters, it's all empty, there's no self. And not take any responsibility in our engagement on the relative level. And it's said, I, th- I think I mentioned this to you, you know, from the teachings of Nagarjuna, he said, people who are attached to the relative, even though they're stuck in things, they can be helped. You know, because there are practices and you can develop understanding and it's not so much of a problem. People who are attached to emptiness, attached to that view of emptiness, it's hopeless. Because there's no. There's no place in that that lends itself to the purification of mind, to the development of mind. It's all empty. There's nothing to do. If one had fully realized that, you know, and were fully enlightened, it wouldn't be a problem. But short of that, it's a big problem. Because then we're simply playing out all the old patterns of our conditioning often which involve a lot of suffering but it's as if there's not a taking this not a taking of responsibility in that up level is this clear Mm. i mean i think this is this is a very for me it's a very interesting uh, point especially as the dharma comes to the west because we certainly see the attachment to the relative just in our, in our general society. You know, people very attached to things and to people. But we also see in this transmission of the wisdom, you know, in a lot of Eastern wisdom to the West, before it's fully realized, it's like certain pieces of it get pulled out and there can be a real danger in that. There's one teaching, and again, it's that uh, maybe I mentioned Korean Zen master Shinul from the 12th century or somewhere back there. He he had a wonderful teaching. He called sudden awakening gradual cultivation. You know, and I like it because he kind of combines the two levels, and even with that emphasis on yes, there can be moments of sudden awakening to the to the. Ultimate level where we see the emptiness. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yes, we can have that sudden awakening, and then that needs a gradual cultivation to really integrate it fully. If somebody who has not asked yet, if there is anybody. Mm -hmm. So the question was about equanimity and the coolness of it and compassion and which also seems to feel very, in a way, impersonal and kind of a grand uh, quality of mind. And the question of how that relates to mercy which in some way, what I'm getting you feel it in the way you're using or holding that uh, value as being more directly connected and personal and responsive is that yeah. um yeah 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 i th- i think that um To me, mercy is one of the actions of compassion. Why, why do we show mercy? Because we have compassion for the suffering of another being. That's, it's that feeling of compassion or love which actually uh, inspires the act of mercy and forgiveness. Um, and compassion, like mercy, in the way you're using, does does not have anything to do with whether you like them or don't like them. It really is the response to suffering. You may be making this distinction because of, you know, your familiarity and immerse, immersion in a tradition that uses that terminology in actual practice and experience, I don't see much difference. And as you were speaking, I was just thinking myself of very specific times when I would come close to a situation of suffering, you know, and respond to it. The one particular one that came to mind, uh, for those of you who've been to India, you know that the plight of the dogs there are just horrible you know it's just the dogs in the streets it's you know they're starving and they're completely mangy and it's just terrible condition and it's just very interesting to watch one's own mind what was interesting to me in relationship to that and to watch how at times I just didn't even want to see them. You know, it was really uh, a quality of revulsion, you know. As, and at other times, when I would let it in, and really let it in, you know, and, and feel and connect with the suffering that was there, automatically from that, there was a wanting to feed them. You know, and so you I don't know whether you would call that mercy or but it was it was a very specific act of compassion which came from actually letting the suffering in. So my sense is that when we are in that very personal level, like when you were witnessing the execution, that entered into you. You weren't keeping it out. Right? And so there was that natural move. I mean, you didn't have the capacity to extend. The mercy at that time you know in a way that would stop the execution but the feeling was there um, so I, I actually don't see very much difference because compassion here we're doing it in a very global way but in life the practice is really very specific to a situation of suffering and that's when i feel the act and that quality of mercy is just there. So I don't really see the difference in the specifics, in the specifics of the connection with the situation of suffering. So I don't know if there's anything more in your question.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, it would just be interesting for you just to look in those situations, to look in your own mind and see what is it that's motivating the mercy. There's There's something which is motivating that act. And it would be interesting to discover what that is. Because even I I think it's too much, and, and this is maybe where the problem is it's too much to even talk of being a compassionate person. It's moments of compassion, you know? So equanimity, in that coolness of it, seemed to, for you, uh, have as part of it uh, sort of dispassion, disconnection, even cruelty. Um, first I think it's important, and I don't know if this was mentioned in the talk, it probably was, the difference between equanimity and its near-enemy you know, of indifference, it's very easy to confuse those two. And so you need to be discerning in your own mind, so that you're not taking indifference to be equanimity. Because these are very different states, although they can look alike. And as you were speaking, some of the qualities you mentioned felt to be more characteristic of indifference than equanimity because my experience of the equanimous state is one of impartiality. Right? So that embraces everything. It's not indifference. It's not even particularly cool. There's an evenness, there's a balance, there's an impartiality, there's an openness to everything equally. And to me, that is the basis, actually, of all the other Brahma-viharas. Because we're not making separation, we're not having preferences for this or for that. Uh, And the quality that's cultivated in the equanimity practice is it's both the quality that's cultivated and the quality that gives birth to equanimity is wisdom you know it's the understanding yes <clears throat> all beings are the heirs of their own karma we can see the truth of that you know the in uh, and hold the space, hold the space of heart and mind, so that we take in all beings without partiality. Right. And so that becomes the basis then for actually extending matter or extending compassion to all beings universally. Um, equanimity is like space. And space holds all things, contains all things, embraces all things. It's not limited. Um, So again, I I would be, um, try to be quite discerning in the difference between the state of indifference and the state of equanimity. Well, I think, uh, I think it actually goes back to an earlier question about the metta and the loving kindness and how we usually understand it on the relative level, but I think there's a way of understanding it on the more ultimate level as well. Because in the experience of selflessness, there's no separation. In other words, if there's a self, if there's, an, if there's a separate self, that predicates other. Right? As soon as we have a self, there's an other than self. And so the relative level of metta is in that domain. Okay, I'm here and I'm extending loving kindness to all others on the more ultimate level of selflessness. Just, we'll do a little, we'll do a little mind game. Okay, we're sitting, and kind of have a sense of yourself sitting. And just be aware of the fact that you're sitting where you are and that all the people are around you in you know, different ways. You know, so we're kind of just all these separate individuals. Now, see if it's possible to change the reference point. So instead of feeling identified with this, see if it's possible to let the awareness, so to speak, become the space in the room that contains everyone. So like, we're all pods of the same multi- bodied being, you know, just become the space that holds us all. Is this working? (laughs) Sometimes the mind can just click into that, sometimes not. (laughs) But what I have found is as soon as I get out of the reference point of this being me, Into the more selfless space of just openness in which everything is appearing or arising, that very state of selflessness, or you call it emptiness, the quality of that is a quality of love. (laughs) But it's different than I'm loving you. It's a different, it's not on that relative level, it's just. There's no one there to be separate. And in that, the experience is. And that's why I think I've, I've mentioned to you. For me, you know, there's so much about just translation of, of words, but I think on one level, on one level, emptiness and love mean the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, of how the wisdom of equanimity does inform the love and compassion. But you might express it another way, and this might help connect, just as you expressed it well, kind of, you know, the metta cares about people's happiness, compassion cares about people's suffering, mudita uh, cares about people's joy, and we might say, and... For me, this is how the equanimity practice works. That equanimity cares about people's wisdom. And so when I do the equanimity practice, for me, every phrase, every time I use that phrase, I hold it as a gift of wisdom. Now, that's what I'm offering to the person. Uh, you know, and so it's not at all that, it's not at all indifference, and it's not cool, and it's not, it's like that's what we can offer this this understanding, and the result of that is this sense of great openness and impartiality. So I think they do work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, okay, so the question was about if the Buddha ever talked about God or the divine and how one could, you know, share these practices with people who do have a strong belief. You would really have to know what people mean when they use the term God because people can have so many different ideas and conceptions. So if it's the belief in a personal creator God, that is not part of what the Buddha taught. If you are talking about God as truth, as ultimate truth, then it is precisely what the Buddha is talking about. You know, and so you really need to explore a little bit what a person might mean. But even leaving that aside, even if people are coming from a different belief system, even quite a different belief system, the place of commonality is very often not in the metaphysics and not in the particular belief system, but in a commonality of values and that's where the inter religious dialogues are most fruitful. You know what do people value of of in this practice and in other spiritual traditions? Does one value love or hatred? Does one value generosity or avarice? Does one value compassion or cruelty? You know, so when you get down to the actual qualities being developed and valued, there's a lot in common. You know, when you get into the metaphysics of things, there can be quite a lot of differences. Mm. So that's my suggestion for how, to, for how to relate. I would not enter into conversation starting with selflessness. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, in, uh, I mentioned in one of the earlier talks, I think one of the bridges for understanding that you no, know, even in our own Western culture and other religious traditions, is lack of self-centeredness. That's easily easy to understand. Right? Most people limit their understanding of it to kind of behavior, and I think here in the practice we extend that to the depths of realizing. there is no self at the center. That is the real lack of self-centeredness, right? We're not creating a sense of self at the center, but, you know, that can be approached all the way from behavior patterns to the deepest understanding. Uh, and I think that's another shared value. I, mean, I don't know of any particular tradition that says be more self-centered I don't know, maybe, maybe there are, but it's just, I I feel it's, it's so easy to get into arguments about philosophy and miss the essential points of what are the qualities being cultivated? What are the qualities that we value? Because that's the juice of the practice. Do you want to talk about it now? (laughs) (laughs) There are many models for describing experience, and a one useful, and all of these are just descriptions. They're just concepts that we are creating, we are constructing, so you have to understand it in that light. But one of the most useful models for understanding our lives in terms of selflessness, I think is the Abhidhamma model, which describes the realities of our experience rather than the concepts of our experience in terms of the physical elements, in terms of mental factors, in terms of consciousness, and Nibbana. Those are the four realities that are highlighted. And so you could see these as the pieces of a moving jigsaw puzzle. You know, and when the pieces are... Well, we probably we really haven't seen moving jigsaw puzzles, so <laughs> you need to stretch your imagination here a little bit. You know, when the 3D, when all the pieces are together and moving, gives the appearance of, yeah, this is Joseph, you know, having lunch, or taking a shower, or engaged in the various activities. And so that's the relative reality, that's the appearance of things. But when we look more carefully, we see that this concept of Joseph is just an appearance, and that it's really made up of just all of these different elements. You know, the pieces, the material elements and the, the mental elements and the mental factors. And so whatever it is that you're asking about really is just another factor doing its thing. So, for example, choice. Choice is a mental factor. It's a particular function of the mind that works in a particular way. It's not that it belongs to anybody. It's not that it's self. You know, intent, as you know, and it's been working now for weeks. You know, if you've been noticing intention, that also, it's not I, it's not self, it's just a factor conditioned by various things. Um, in terms of the discussion of free will and determinism, I had many an all-nighter as a freshman in college on that one because I was studying philosophy and we really got into it. And people have been talking about this for thousands of years. I don't think that discussion goes anyplace because I don't think free will means anything. You know, I think we've put those two words together but I don't think it has meaning free of what there is will will is one of the mental factors and that will is conditioned by various things just like everything else is conditioned that has nothing to do with determination it's just a it's a process of conditioning and becoming and so I think we've gotten. I think we got caught. At least this is this is my understanding. Maybe a professional philosopher would have a different view. Uh, but I think it's it's like a. What do you call it? Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase I'm searching for. <laughs> yeah, a red herring is that. Or it, it's something that that seems to create a problem, but really it, it has no particular meaning, or no particular substance. So I don't think that's a useful way to engage in the discussion. I think it's much more useful to see, okay, well, what are the factors arising in any moment, and to begin to see, which is precisely our practice, that they are all conditioned by one thing or another. Uh-huh and that they're all selfless, they don't belong to anyone. There's no one behind them to whom, to whom they're happening. Anyway, that's my free will determinism rap. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that's, okay. Uh-huh. And the two different meanings being or uses. Right, right. Right, right. And. Right, the intention before a movement. Great. That's. That is easier. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Again, this is the problem of language because all of these words are translated from Pali and often we use one word in English in many different ways. So intention in the Abhidhamma sense, the Pali word is Jaitana, it really is, it's the function in the mind that gathers all the other factors together to perform an act. So it's It's that volition which which brings all the the other factors together to do something. Intention used in the other way, you know, why did you come to the retreat? What was your intention? I think a better word probably would have been aspiration or motivation, you know, just to distinguish because it's really two quite different things. Each intention Each particular intention, uh, The karmic result. Back up again. It's this factor of intention of jaitana, which carries the karmic juice. You no, know, it's that volition in every moment. That's what is the seed, right? That brings about uh, the various karmic fruits. What fruit? arises comes from the motivation associated with that intention. So for example, there can be a motivation, an intention associated with greed. So it bears some kind of fruit. An intention associated with love, it bears another kind of fruit. Okay, so it's the intention, that volition, which actually is the, as I say, the juice of the karma. But it's the motivation which determines what the result is. So that they, too, they they often work together, but they're two different things. Did that clarify or confuse? <laughs> okay, one last question. Mixed uh, motivations. The, the comment was that there are often mixed motivations. So how do you ever know what's a pure motivation? I think this is the great challenge and gift of the practice because first it's a tremendously helpful insight to know that we have mixed motivations. So that's a big step. Because I think very often people go through their lives assuming that their motivations are pretty pure and good and wholesome and noble and wonderful. Anybody who sat for 10 minutes (laughs) knows that it's not quite the case, you know, that there is a tremendous range within us. So to see that I think is very valuable. In the seeing of it, it gives you the chance then and this in a very simple way to practice not acting on those motives that you see are unwholesome and cultivating those that you see are. Um, I don't know if this was mentioned in the generosity talk, but a practice that I've done just in that regard, you know, of seeing a whole range of motivations and then acting, a practice that I've done often is, in just going along, if I have a thought to give something, I just try to make a practice to do it. Even if there are other successive Motivation, no, I want, I'm going to need it, you know, this, whatever, you know, that kind of holding back. So I see the range in my mind, but there can be a choice to act on the wholesome one. And I think that's where we find the purity, not in some extended state. We see it in a particular moment. Right? And so when we see it, we can cultivate it. When we see the unwholesome motivations, we can practice simply letting them go but it's it's a moment-to-moment process and that's where the mindfulness is so essential. If we are not paying attention, if we're not mindful of what's arising in our hearts in terms of motivation, we are just acting, it's like we're we're just acting out old patterns of conditioning, some of which may be wholesome, many are not. And so this is the great gift of mindfulness, You know, in our lives, it actually gives us the space to make wise choices. We make wiser choices. It brings happiness. The happier we are, the more wise choices we make. You know, and so it's just a spiral upward. I know that you remember Thich Nhat Hanh's great teaching. He said, "Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it." And so I think that's what our practice is. Let's just sit for a few minutes, helping yourselves to a little happiness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my knee hurts! wonderful aspect of the practice, not only is the bodhijitta at the beginning of a sitting or the day but a dedication of our practice, a merit at the end of a sitting. For example, just the simple dedication. May the merit of my practice, may the merit of this sitting, may the merit of this discussion be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings.